This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. Well, now I'd like to introduce our speaker today, Rick Wesson. He is here from Support Intelligence, and he's going to be talking about detecting um, an abuse pattern and figuring out what your network is doing to the rest of the internet, and that way you can find out if there's some kind of an attack happening at your site. Let me give you some background on his company. Um, Support Intelligence, which he is the CEO of, provides a security monitoring service for critical networks. And this company actually has many companies, including Fortune 500 companies that are their customers, and it's actively a working product. So he's going to talk to us about how this works. And it should be you know, very interesting, because this is not an easy problem to solve by any means. Trying to detect from outside a network if something else is attacking the network and causing that network to take action upon the rest of the internet. So it should be very interesting. A little bit about things that Rick Wesson has done before support intelligence or currently. He is also the CEO of Alice's Registry. That is current? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So he's the CEO of two things at the same time. And um, Alice's Registry is an ICANN accredited domain name registrar. He's also been very influential in domain name registration security, which is also known as DNS SEC. In the nonprofit area, he is on the board. He's the vice president of the board of directors, actually. I was. Oh, he was. I'm not okay. He was in the past. Being CEO of two things, there's only so much at once. So he was, in the past, uh, the vice president of the board of directors of a nonprofit for a credit union organization, uh, for developing credit unions, which was called the Santa Cruz Community Development Credit Union. So he's done a lot of interesting things in the past. And he also has a bachelor's degree in management information systems from Auburn. So please welcome Rick Wesson. Thanks. Am I on? Yeah, sounds good. Thanks. So um, there, I, I started subtitling this. Uh, people have asked for talks on botnets before. It's an it's a interesting topic. We've gotten good press from it. Um, and uh, a little bit about myself and the company. Uh, I started off in MIS at Auburn University, which um, I'm completely jealous of the education that you get at an organization, a university like Stanford. I, I wish that I could have come here. Um, but I was stuck in a, a, a little university back in the South. Uh, they didn't encourage studying the internet. But uh, at, at any rate, I got to learn about it. And um, through the years working, at this working in this organization called ICANN, um, got to help create some protocols for uh, DNSSEC, DNS security. Um, we also worked on registry registrar protocols for being able to split up this organization that was called um, Network Solutions and then eventually VeriSign. Um, and all that was real interesting. But what we started to, to see uh, in 1999 and 2000 was the abusive use of the domain name system to uh, create things that were eventually called phishing um, and, and used in different kinds of uh, attacks. And today, some of the, uh, the biggest 
DDoS attacks or use the DNS and the domain name system to create those attacks. And all this stuff was terribly fascinating. And uh, so I created a research project that lasted a few years. And we eventually spun that up into a company that's wholly owned by two individuals, Adam Waters and myself. And uh, we haven't taken any investment. We've been in the black for uh, 18 months. And that is unique in the Valley. Um, we don't have a lot of people to tell us what to do. So we actually get to name names of companies that get compromised on our blog. And if you want to read about some of the companies that I'm going to talk about today and what happened to them and how they got compromised and what that meant uh, to a Fortune 500, uh, you can read about those on our blog. So today, I'm going to talk to you about anticipating security failures and the global infection rate of botnets on the internet. We're going to define the problem. Uh, we're going to look at what global network analysis means. Um, then we're going to dive down into the anatomy of a botnet. We're going to talk about what kind of capabilities it offers the botmasters. We're going to look at what capabilities the command and control structures offer. We're going to look at some of the victims and some of the villains. And then we're going to wrap it up with a little overview on trying to anticipate this kind of stuff. So essentially, it's really difficult to understand when a device on your network has done something nasty or uh, nefarious to another device on the global network. And the thing that concerns me so much is that working, helping build this network, which I'm sure many of you have, um, you start to care about it. And when you see an infection rate that grows so dramatically, uh, you, you get concerned, or at least I do. Um, the number of newly infected systems is growing faster than um, any organically based infectious disease that we've researched recently. To compare and contrast this, I like to throw out a number that people do seem to understand. If we're talking about 4.3 million new AIDS infections on an annual basis, I just want you to remember that number because we're going to come back to infection rates on the internet and you'll be able to compare and contrast this. Unfortunately, AIDS kills people and uh, computer viruses don't necessarily kill computers, but I'm just trying to draw the connection on the infection rates. So the kinds of things that we're looking at when we uh, talk about abuse or malicious behavior is uh, distributed denial of service, click fraud or auction fraud, hosting different kinds of open proxies. An open proxy allows a third party to, to send packets as though it was originated from that device. Um, and it will uh, port the packets back to the original device. So it appears um, that that single device is, um, is generating that traffic. It's valuable for click fraud. Um, so hosting those things, we consider them to be uh, nefarious. There's a thing called a splog, which is used to uh, manipulate either uh, link rank or ranking systems that um, are used to determine uh, search results in some instances. Um, phishing and identity theft, we consider uh, forms of abuse or malicious behavior. Um, the BGP, which is uh, responsible for routing information between autonomous system numbers. Uh, do I need to define autonomous system numbers? Everybody familiar with BGP and what it does? 
I see people nodding, so I won't go into that. Okay. Border routing protocol is um, the protocol that transmits the metadata about what routes to distribute packets to when performing the routing function. It's how autonomous systems, which are large aggregates of internal uh, network structures, exchange information. So you would look at an autonomous system as a large cloud. Uh, Stanford University has an autonomous system number, and these numbers are used uh, to understand how packets flow between large aggregate networks. That information changes very rapidly on a global basis. We watch that information from a number of points so that we can understand if a route has been hijacked. If you look at just an IP address, um, that IP address may not be connected with uh, the organization that it's been delegated to in a routing information registry, which is kind of like a phone book. That route can be stolen because there is no security on the uh, exchange of meta information for the routing infrastructure. And so we watch these because routes will get stolen and malicious activity performed from them. And all of a sudden, you think that Stanford University is attacking you, but it's not. Part of that block, part of the, the, the blocks assigned to uh, Stanford have been hijacked by another entity in Malaysia and are used to send spam to someone in Japan. And this isn't theory, this happens. Um, it doesn't happen a lot. It's kind of hard to do, um, but we track it. There's also um, these other things that are called bogons, which are unallocated address space. It's space that, believe it or not, we have not yet allocated. There's been lots of talk about how we're running out of space, but there is some. And that space is sometimes announced in the BGP, the global address space, and can be used to deliver spam or perform click fraud or do any of these things. And so understanding where the BGP is uh, where the addresses that are announced in the BGP are being announced from, how long they're active, where they're active from, and where they're usually stable, where they usually reside, uh, helps us understand uh, malicious activity. We also track um, tons of spam, which is a favorite of everyone, um, particularly stuff that's sent via botnets, because that's a major contributing factor to the delivery of spam today. So the reason that all of this exists is because it's, there's an economy. It's really cheap to deploy a botnet, and it's almost free. It does co cost a little bit of money, uh, especially for the more sophisticated uh, bot networks, and especially for the people that actually pay for the resources that they're stealing. Unfortunately, it's really hard today to create a network that uh, cannot be penetrated. And the utility of that network is decreased some uh, for the users of it. And so we have networks like the .mil folks and the NSA that run networks that are connected to the internet that have um, spent literally millions of dollars to secure those networks. Uh, and they get infected the least, but they still get infected. They still uh, connect to botnets, they still get data mined, they still get infiltrated, they just get infiltrated to a less extent. Are you going to talk about who the bad guys are? 
Sure, I'll be happy to as we go through some of this. So w one of the problems that we have is that it costs a lot of money to change this and uh, it's an enormous amount of money and it's not going to go away anytime soon. We have the rate of change is not in our favor, it's in the bad guy's favor today. Uh, so there's some efforts going on in the government to help change that and to help encourage investment in organizations that uh, create responses for this kind of stuff, both for government and, uh, and, the, and the private sector. Um, but it's still very cheap for these guys to deploy these systems. There's a number of vectors that you can become, and uh, you can get the malware installed on different kinds of systems, or they can acquire access to one of the systems. Those are from email, they send an attachment. Um, there's this thing that's now called spear phishing, which is where, um, let's say I've, I've uh, received some mail from your organization. So I, I now have an email address, I, I have a name, and I may have some content that I can use to reply to. And in that, I'll put, hey, Bob, here's the new Word document that you are asking for. The likelihood that Bob's going to open that is pretty high if that was Bob's email address and there might have been an attachment there. Um, the kind of code that you can attach to a Microsoft Word document that will infect most systems, um, it, it, it's out there and it's being used um, for, uh, and this is where the state sponsors come in, it's being used in a highly targeted manner either for industrial espionage or for state sponsored espionage. And the State Department has received most of this spear phishing stuff. And there's a couple of companies that, that are working really hard to secure that uh, inbound vector. Who were they attacked? Which countries? Um, the, the latest talk um, hasn't necessarily been about uh, spear phishing, but it's the assessment of what's going on in Estonia. And those attackers were Russian, but the general consensus is that that was not state-sponsored. Um, it was uh, most likely people with uh, high national pride inside of Russia. Um, the interesting aspect of this is a large number of the autonomous systems and the devices were both in Estonia and Russia and um, that were doing the DOS, but most of them had been compromised. So a large set of those systems already had been infected and it's hard to tell when you know that they were comp you know that there may have been a third party that was directing that machine. Thank you. That was precisely the example I wanted. Oh, and I have documentation, and I know the fella in Estonia that was responsible for it, and I can hook you up with two okay. or three no, other I people. Don't, I don't need the details. Oh, okay. That was the one I followed. It was interesting. There's other um, web pages um, just by downloading a web page and viewing it, uh, which is the infection vector that's uh, most common today. Uh, P2P file sharing networks, a lot of the binaries that you get on file sharing networks come pre-infected, especially if you download operating systems, um, uh, commercial operating systems that are available on P2P networks. Um, and then of course just being on the network, you can uh, get scanned, fi they'll find a vulnerability and, uh, and yes sir? What's the mechanism for infection from a web page? Uh, merely viewing it. No, um, 
it's is this JavaScript or is this oh, many times it can be uh, JavaScript. There's uh, vectors for um, some of the Microsoft object. I uh, forget the acronym. Uh, there's Active X. Thank you. Um, Flash. There you. Yeah, it's mini. But a lot of uh, the Web 2.0 thing requires Flash or JavaScript or um, OLE objects, and. You can, and um, this company was recently bought, it was from Palo Alto, bought by Google last week, called Green Border. And what they had done is put a sandbox around the browser. So you run your browser in this conceptual thing called the sandbox that has a better understanding of what's important in the operating system and what's malicious from um, a capability standpoint from what the browser could do. And so it tries to protect the system kind of like a condom for software. Um, I don't have a better analogy. <laughs> so uh, does that answer your question? OK. Um, so a little bit about what the internet is, what we're trying to watch. Um, we took all of the blocks that are announced in a stable fashion um, through the BGP and broke them up into what's called a 24. Um, it's also called a Class C network, if you remember that term. It's the same size. That ended up to be about 8.1 million blocks. And so we have the internet, essentially, its address space diced up into this nice set. Um, and that is, uh, it helps us do analysis for all kinds of machine learning stuff that we're trying out. There's effectively 140 million domains registered uh, in internet registries across the world. Um, the big five are ComNet, Biz, Org, Info, and US. Uh, that has the vast majority of registrations of that 140 million. That's approximately 85 million domains. Of the 85 million, every day, somewhere between 5 and 13 million will churn. There's a five-day window with those top registries that represent the 85 roughly million domains. And there's a policy that they have that, that um, has encouraged a group to do this thing that's called domain tasting, where they'll register a domain, and they can hold that domain for five days before they have to pay for it. And then they, they, they register the domain, they put an IP address on you know, they host the DNS, and then they put services out there and see what comes to it. And on any given day, there's between 5 and 15 million of those. There's also a small number of people that register those domains and send out spam from them that same day. Or maybe they'll send out the spam before they've registered the domain, register the domain, and then use it in a phishing uh, expedition. So we track this hundred and uh, uh, some good portion of the 140 million. The rest are distributed around CCTLDs such as DE, which is Germany, UK. There's 212 other CCTLDs, which are called country code top-level domains. And then there's about eight or nine other TLDs that are function-specific. Uh, they don't have uh, vast numbers of registrations 
One of them is uh, .mobi for mobile devices. Another one is .museum for museums around the world. Um, and uh, yes, .travel. There's, uh, there's a number of these that ICANN uh, has, has created organizations to run. So we try and watch as much of that stuff as we can to understand patterns and to just see what's going on. There's tons of interesting projects just in that um, 85 million domains. We track uh, 22,000 autonomous system numbers. Uh, autonomous systems are the uh, delegates of the address space, which uh, are used in the BGP uh, to associate a route with an entity that provides services for that, those addresses. Um, it turns out being about 200,000 routes, um, uh, these blocks that are, that are routed every day. So as far as all the events that's generated out of all this stuff that we're trying to track, it comes out to about 2.2 million events that we see every day that are of a malicious, suspicious, uh, abusive nature in all of those categories that I enumerated earlier. So we've got DDoS and spam and open proxies and click fraud. So how we did this is we tried to build what some people call an automated forensic system. But we did this for the whole internet. We didn't try and do it for one company or one network or a LAN. We tried to build a global view of this whole thing. And to do that, we had to use these things that are called honeypots, which are low interaction devices. You put them on a network and you leave them very open. They're fairly secure devices um, because there's nothing behind them. But they pretend like they're a big network. And they pretend like they're lots of computers with lots of open web servers. And they just get abused. They, uh, they collect information that we use in data mine. Darknets is when you take some address space and you just listen, and you see what comes a knocking. It's very interesting. There's lots of things that scan, and you get to pick up those packets. Um, and then we run a massive spam trap. We've got about 10,000 domains that we run in a, in a trap, and a couple of companies donated a bunch of equipment to us, and we just suck in all this spam and, and do analysis on it. We have some partners, uh, Cisco, Ironport, and Postini. They all feed us data from uh, their uh, anti-spam solutions. We have community partners like uh, SpamCop, which is part of the Ironport uh, now. SpamHouse and other uh, DNS-based RBLs, which are called real-time blacklists. They publish this information over the DNS. We data mine that. And then we also host, so we provide these services to other people and allow them to uh, query us. What's interesting is botnets check to see if they are in the RBLs. So we start to see these hosts that check every once in a while. And we'll see them checking the DNS blacklists before they're well known. And so doing data mining on all this, and we do uh, six to eight megs of DNS, that's a second. That's a fair amount of queries. Um, we partner with uh, some universities and uh, other security researchers out in there uh, on the network that do different uh, 
different research topics. We share data to try to help them and build this stuff up. We, know, we all know that we don't have enough information to understand everything. And so hopefully by trading, it makes us all stronger. We have collected about 135 data sources or data feeds that we're putting into all this stuff. On the, on the ground, we put the BGP, which is the addresses, where they are, and who's responsible for them. We take the RIR data and collect that together. So this is the framework that we're using to data mine the internet to understand when your network is abusing somebody else's network passively. Without having to deploy de devices on either one of those networks, we have to build a foundation where we understand where everything is, and it changes by the second, um, and who's responsible for them. So essentially, a botnet is an insider threat. It's um, a device on your network, probably on many networks, that are managed, what they call owned, by a third party. So now we're going to get into the controller capabilities, what kind of things that when you have an infected system, the capabilities that it's offering up to the rest of the world or anyone that this third party wants to sell its services to. Um, and then we're going to go dive down into what data gets exfiltrated um, by these kinds of devices. This um, was a controller that I offered up at uh, DEF CON 14 last year um, when I was giving a talk on botnets. And I said, anybody that can, uh, that can take this down, because there were lots of people bragging that year that they could take out a botnet in 20 minutes, uh, could have all the beer I'd set up on the table. And I'm sad to say there's no beer here, but um, it was uh, six weeks before this particular botnet got taken out. And it wasn't until we were doing another conference at Cisco, and I did the same thing. And it, it took a week from that time to actually take this one down. This was a really small network. But what it was making available, here you can see the IP address. Um, this tells you what port it's offering SOX, which is a proxy. On. This is a unique ID that we'll come to in a few moments. This tells you what country the particular end node was on, if we happen to know the city. This is a, a pretty rich set of information. If you want to send a packet from the United States, or maybe Herndon, Virginia, to do to buy something, this is what you would need. It tells you how many connections are available, and with this, this ID, it offers some other capabilities. Just some more of the same thing. There were about 200 nodes online um, when I, I took these snapshots. Um, I also, at, uh, at the beginning, when I first found this one, um, we notified the registrar. We notified uh, the organization that it was registered to that this was a botnet, had all these things. We gave them this whole report just to see if it did anything. It didn't. No one, no one turned off its DNS. No one turned off its hosting. Um, this allows you to download and execute files. You can block URLs for banks. You can clear the host file. You can upload a new host file. If you are familiar with um, Windows systems, there's a host.txt file, which is the same name of the host file on Unices before the DNS was around. And this thing gets looked at before a DNS name will get looked up. So it has a, a priority in the naming scheme. Um, 
you can get a screenshot. I don't know how many of you uh, bank with Bank of America, but Bank of America has this thing called SiteKey, which shows you an image. This will allow you, if they go to Bank of America, to capture that, that image um, from the screen. And then you can run all kinds of personal commands, rename files, upload new host files. What is this? This is called the command and control. This is the controller for a botnet. This will tell you who all is participating in the botnet and allow you to manage it. And this is a, a PHP system that gets installed when you, uh, when you build the botnet. This is all built off of PHP. Um, if you want to send spam with this botnet, you can have, uh, you can fill out this form. Um, you put the machine ID in the bottom. That was what you had copied from one of those other screens. Uh, tell it the URLs for the uh, body template and um, the URL for all the users that you want to spam and just press submit. This does the work for you. So this particular botnet also had uh, data exfiltration capabilities, which um, it would data mine your hard drive and look for special things. Uh, social security numbers and email addresses were its favorites, but it could look for anything that um, the controller wanted. And this particular one also had the capability to record any transaction that went out over HTTPS and had a password field in the form. So any post that, had eight, that was over HTTP or HTTPS that had a password field would be recorded. And then after it had accumulated a few of these, it would upload them to another website. Now, this is really junior kind of stuff. If you're worried about data on your corporate network being data mined and removed, it takes these capabilities. You have to be able to identify the data, the, the kind of information that you're looking for, and you be able, need to be able to exfiltrate it off of the network. And if you're a defense contractor and have one of these things running on your network, it might be sending out spam today, but it has the capabilities to do much more. Out of this uh, 30 days that we looked at of the data that was exfiltrated, there were 793 unique systems. These were all behind AOL's network. Um, if you look at the top, there's a remote address. That's AOL's outbound proxies. Uh, the internals were uh, 10 net addresses. And in this particular example, it got his mail pop. Um, POP3 password user ID. He went to some adult-oriented website. Um, he logged in using his AOL account, uh, went and checked out some music, and then maybe understood that something was going wrong and went to McAfee, probably to look for some antivirus software. This guy, this particular uh, machine, um, came back many times. So if he did purchase something from McAfee, uh, it didn't save him. So what we did was we took that data file and we broke it out. We wanted to understand who was compromised and how, what third parties were affected by that. Um, 
This was a small botnet, had almost 800 hosts in it. All of them were Microsoft Windows. All of them were behind AOL. A lot of them connected to adult websites. I think those are three factors that were uh, somehow associated with this particular population. Uh, there were 17,000 data captures of those. There were 35,000 form log posts. Uh, so there's a HTTP post command. And uh, it captured passwords for POP, IMAP, Telnet, all the form data. And had we decided to write better parsers, we could have gotten even more. It had uh, affected a large number of businesses. So there were only 800 machines that got infected. But there were over 1,200 different businesses that had credentials, login credentials, stolen. So most of these businesses were in the US, but 35 of them were brokerage accounts. Now, what's been happening with brokerages these days is a brokerage account will get compromised. That'll get sold off to another organization that takes that account, sells all of the stocks in the account, and buys penny stocks. At the same time, they're unloading penny stocks. Not only do they make more money, it's clean money. You get to keep all of it. You don't have to launder that money. This is a fantastic, the boon that the internet has given crime is fantastic. So 35 brokerage accounts, 86 bank accounts, 174 e-commerce accounts, um, eBay, PayPal, uh, there's a lot of porn accounts. If you want this file, I'm happy to give it to you. You'll never have to sign up for another porn account again. There's tons and tons of them in here. Um, and of course, a large number of emails of your family and friends. Email addresses that were uh, exfiltrated from your data, from your file systems, and uh, served up into this uh, what did you do with data that? file. Businesses and email account? No, no, we didn't. But we do have another program that we're telling people that have stolen identities that we collect. But I don't really get, I can tell you about it towards the end. How do you get this without getting yourself in trouble? We get in trouble. Um, how do we get, we work with a large number of researchers. And uh, researchers find this information and we all do stuff with it. Uh, this particular stuff was found uh, might have been by one of our uh, our partners that there are many compromised systems that have these data collection um, activities going on and when a researcher finds it or another one of our partner companies finds it we tell each other about it so that we can figure it out if uh, who in law enforcement should um, should find it can we go uh, do counterintelligence on that kind of thing um, and so the information's traded around amongst a vetted set of peers. And that's how we find it. Um, if we find stuff, we you know, give it to that same community. Um, and what did you mean by get in trouble? Well, you get in trouble. You just, this previous example you gave was a bunch of people who are AOL customers. Now, how do you get the data? I mean, AOL is your partner, and does, do people who sign no, up? No, no, AOL is not one of our partners, and uh, we have not given that data to AOL. Um, AOL, we have contacted 
a couple of times about situations and, you know, we try and work with companies and um, if the concepts that we're trying to get across really don't resonate with them, they end up in the blog or they end up in a talk. What else can we do? No, I, I, I meant specifically. Suppose it's you know, Zaneo, a customer, grandma, or I yeah, guess sure. the way you described it, probably grandpa, on a DSL line yep. at Dubuque, mm -hmm. right? And then you've gotten data that's been stolen from his machine. Yes. How, did, how do you not get in trouble acquiring that data, presumably since he didn't sign up for any, right. either you or any of your partner's services? Yeah, we don't, we don't do anything with it, except for in this case, show it to you. No, we, we, okay, so that, that data yeah, got infiltrated from his machine to uh, an, the command and control server. Which you have somehow been able to Which we monitor. learned that uh, it had indexing turned on and you could just take the data file. <laughs> and so that's, that's how this particular yeah, data file got. Many times they are, but right. most of them are not. <laughs> so in this particular instance, the data file could just be taken. Because so, it was there. So you're stealing information from the thieves. Um, certainly. Or are we? So I, they could they could take umbrage, but it would be hard. It would be hard. Yes, you know, certainly. Yeah, we had a talk with um, some of the high enough, um, some of the uh, Department of uh, uh -huh. at that conference. There's definitely gray area here. Obviously, what you've just done would make the whole case inadmissible. Oh. Can't go after it. But yeah. this, one, this fine line, if you. So it's like one of these things that uh, the, the victims must be the ones who bring it to your attention. It can't be by way of third party. Right. Yeah, can you just repeat that? One of the things that's really difficult is... I was just going to say that at a... I was just going to say that basically I was at a, one of the high net conferences and uh, some of the Department of Justice people were in round tables with us, mm -hmm. explained that any third party, even if you're an organization, right. has the right to monitor. As soon as you, through a third party mechanism, see what's going on and report it, that information is inadmissible and it can't be prosecuted. It has to be the victim, in, in a sense, who is the one who um, makes a claim against it for them to then go after the people that are attacking them. Right. From Department, from, from Department of Justice, FBI, um, much less the CIA, all judge whether they're winning or losing is by the number of cases that are prosecuted. And uh, this is something that is starting to change because we're not talking about the number of cases that get prosecuted. The problem is so massive that it's not, in, in my mind, it's not about prosecution. It's about cleaning up the network. It's about defending yourself from this stuff. And you, you have another comment. It's well, what I should add to that use the mic. is very specifically. Can you turn on mic number two, please? What I want to add to that is very specifically by um, monitoring this. Um, we've had many, they explained in many cases, by monitoring it. And if the attackers become aware of monitoring and that you got their information, they themselves, as victims, will take you to court. Um, uh, yeah, that'd be great. I don't think that they're going to come from uh, There have been cases that they well, actually have had. And uh, the, there's a famous one with the government down as Arizona. But basically, there's people who have done Good Shepherd type things who are taken to court and lose yep. big time against third uh, extranational people 
who make more money now in the cases than they make in the original attack. <laughs> so, the, so you understand that there is some risk that we take in bringing you this. And the risk is real, whether, whether they want to come and prosecute us. Um, there have been cases that organizations like mine were able to inflict severe pain on some of these uh, malicious actors. And they didn't come out with uh, a court case. They came first with a, uh, a massive denial of service attack. And then they came second with the pictures of the CEO's kids. That is real. They were threatening his family's life. And that company shuttered its doors. And the investors lost, I don't know, eight, nine million. And they didn't ask any questions. The investors didn't have a problem with that. So there are risks. And I think that there's a lot of value in taking them to fix some of this stuff. Some of the companies that didn't understand, and certainly we haven't been able to, to help, are listed here. 1,200 were affected because their credentials were then sold to another third party that either resold them or extracted some value from having them. Corporations get affected by botnets just as easily as individuals do. And these are just a few of the corporations and organizations that we've seen uh, this year infected with various forms of botnets. Uh, with the exception of Charles Schwab, actually. Charles Schwab is someone that shows up in our analysis that has security practices that all these companies should go talk to. I don't understand why Charles Schaub is doing such a good job, but they are. And that's one of the interesting things that we've been brought to is the concept of cybersecurity metrics. Being able to understand who's doing a good job, who's doing a bad job, find out what these people's security practices are, and try and get them to go talk to these folks. You can read about um, some of the other companies that were outed on our blog. But this is the kind of stuff that was being emitted by those on the previous page. Um, I'm personally offended by this kind of thing. But um, oh, and, and we blacked it out to keep it from offending too many. But this is what the internet is being used for. These are what the botnets are being used to do last year. Send out this kind of information, drive traffic whether it comes from corporations or whether it comes from large uh, consumer networks like broadband providers. So this particular one came through the corporate MX. The botnets are smart enough now, even last year, to not deliver the mail directly from that particular IP, but to connect to the corporate MX server and send it out. This particular one spamvertised links that traverse three different web servers, three different domains that were registered in three different countries that were in the US, Germany, and Russia. And the final web server that was serving up some of that stuff was in China. Now, you're not going to get international agreements between all those countries 
to take this stuff down in the day and a half that it was doing this. It's not going to happen. And it's not enough money for people to get um, excited in law enforcement. That in, it, that in, it fa in, it, in itself doesn't, um, doesn't make anyone interested. Is but, this a national security issue? Yes, it is. I was in DC for three days l last week having talks with FBI, CIA. It was at a, a DIA conference, DNI. Uh, had a had a conference set up where they asked some uh, companies. Um, Northrop Grumman was there, Martin Marietta, us, and uh, a whole bunch of federal agencies who were talking about insider threats, and they were worried that this was going to happen. And my message was that it happened two years ago. We have ten thousand computers compromised today, um, uh, but Microsoft was running them the meeting, and uh, it was a little hard to get that stuff in the document. Maybe you should sue Microsoft. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> who's going who's gonna to do that kamikaze mission? Um, but what's going on? What is the issue that we need to plan five, ten years out is about corporate espionage. And the capabilities to exfiltrate data on the, uh, are, are currently deployed. They're already in the Fortune 500. They're all in the small and medium-sized businesses. They're on your computers at home. And right now, they're interested in exfiltrating your personal identifiable information because they can sell that. There's a market for it. What hasn't yet developed is the state sponsors. They have not gone out and started buying up this stuff. The first time uh, that we had some questions was about Estonia. Was that an act of war? That was a big topic of discussion. When is this an act of war? And how can we tell uh, about the data mining? Uh, is it just getting your social security number? Is that the worst thing that's on your computer that they could acquire? And it, this is all stealth. When we come into these companies and say, hey, did you guys know that you've had this epidemic going on in your company for the last four months? They. There's um, a mindset that security doesn't fail, that security exists and it is maintained, and that there's this onslaught from the outside. But rarely um, do we find someone that acknowledges the insider threat that's created from these things. And that one company that acknowledges it is Cisco Systems. They actually have teams that treat every one of these instances as corporate espionage. But that's the only company I've ever talked to that understands the threat in that way. Yes, sir? Rick, does Cisco actually file lawsuits against people on this basis after they do an investigation? Because my experience has been that you can't get anybody to go take anybody to court on it. That's true. Also, can you repeat the questions for the people watching? So the question was, um, has any of the organizations that we know of uh, taken anyone to court? And uh, the answer is not to my knowledge. They're not interested in doing counterintelligence. They're not interested in law enforcement activities. What they're interested in is getting it off the network, shutting it down as rapidly as possible, and making it go away. Don't let it affect earnings. These companies are driven by Wall Street. They work for Wall Street. Anything that could affect how Wall Street perceives them is paramount.
That's the Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000. So a little bit about the analysis that I'm about to, uh, to give you. We reviewed 101 million events that happened over six months. It turned out to be about 48 million unique IPv4 addresses that spanned 12,000 of the 22,000 autonomous system numbers that were routed at the time. And here's the click, the thing. Um, this came out to a, an average rate, daily rate of new infections of 267,000 compromised systems per day. So remember the 4.3 million AIDS infections on an annual basis? It takes something like 22 days for the internet to have as many devices infected, new devices infected, as AIDS is infecting humans on an annual basis, something like less than a month. That's a terrible state of affairs. This is not the network that I want to participate in. This isn't the network that I feel so many people poured heart and souls into build and it's going to change the world and save us when there's big disasters. Yes, sir? I'm sorry, one more time? How many of those infections are repeats? Are repeats. Same machine gun? Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting, you know, it would be great for my doctoral thesis to do um, the whole DHCP churn. The question was, how many of these are repeated? It's a great question. And if I knew um, the answer to that, I could tell you an awful lot more about the internet. I can tell you that some of them are but it's less than half. Just cut the number in half if you like. It's still terrible. Yes, sir? Is there a tendency now for the new bots to keep a low profile so as not to motivate the owner of the machine to clean it up? The question is, is there a tendency for more stealth technologies in, um, in bot development so that they don't get found out and cleaned up? And yes, sir, the trend is exactly that. Um, most of the researchers research IRC networks, which is how these things are stitched together. Um, the trend now, uh, there was a, a hot topic, hot bots in uh, Boston a few months back, and there were several presentations presented there about botnet controllers that run over HTTP and peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks. The way that the botnets use the DNS, the domain name system, is a technique that we can use to identify them and they are moving away from using the DNS to peer-to-peer -peer networks, um, using HTTP to seed things. So you have to know about some domains, but not a whole lot. And those can be changed. They can use other techniques that are called fast flux to spread around some of that risk, too. So they're getting much harder to detect when they move to these other systems. We've been doing research on IRC-based botnets um, for uh, three years at least. Yes, sir? Um, can you give a rough definition of an event? An event? Yes, um, that would be uh, doing a denial of service, hosting a, um, a splog, hosting an open proxy, um, performing click fraud activities, um, sending clicks essentially to advertiser networks. Uh, sending spam. So this, uh, the, you listed abusive activities before. 
before, so it's I did. any machine that engages in one, or if a, if a machine engages in three of those events in one day, is that three of those activities in one day, is that one event or three events? It depends on uh, either how we aggregate the information or how it's aggregated by our third party. So if it sent spam, it would be one event. It's not for each spam. Um, if it hosted a command and control, that would be one event. That might last a really long time. So over that six months, there might be a command. But if it, if it would have hosted that command and control server and gone away and it was quiet for some period of time and then it became infected again, that would have been another event. Multiply infected. It That's could be engaging in Many multiple activities per day. I was just trying to. Correct. Is, what's the, the time window? Is it's it a was machine? A, it was it's a, a machine per day. I mean, what? Um, we looked at six months of data. This is what I'm I'm talking about now. Is a six month analysis of 101 million events. And so that was a mixture of all of those types of activities. Does that answer your question? Uh, Not precisely, but we can go on. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, what I'm trying to do is provide some high-level analysis on the global infection rate, how many systems get affected by this uh, collection of activities, and where are they, and what is the rate of new infections, which is, is hard. It's certainly obfuscated because of uh, the dynamic nature of address allocations and how they're put on different end systems, so certainly on the um, broadband networks. Uh, we've detected massive infections on the broadband networks. That's where most of them are, but there's very little we can do about it. They're not interested in um, building systems to quarantine them. Just yeah, the other day, I had uh, received some anecdotes of this one organization that had uh, quarantined port 25. You couldn't send outbound port 25. And so they had um, outbound MX service. This is a small to medium-sized ISP. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of customers, not millions. Um, and everybody had to send their mail out through those in-systems, uh, MXs. There was a massive botnet infection. They all woke up at the same time. That set of servers were, they were just completely taken out. They were overwhelmed with all of the spam that was, um, that was coming out of these um, infected systems. They had a mitigation uh, technique. And they were, in the beginning, they were able to mitigate it in uh, just a few minutes, shut these people out, put them, quarantine them. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, they were running hours behind. So they were detecting, but just they couldn't respond. And mail was not exiting uh, for any customers. So it uh, really screwed things up for them. Uh, the key there is that the botnets understand how to get the mail out of the network, uh, even when you close off port 25. And now you have to have systems that can withstand that kind of denial of service attack. It didn't solve the problem, it just moved it. So we have it with government and, or, uh, and educational organizations. I'm happy to provide anyone that would like it with the, uh, the last two and a half years of history for Stanford University. Um, small and medium-sized businesses have the biggest problem. How much is Stanford infected? I can tell you. I, I, you know, I didn't. Do you have some metric? Yes, I do. 
Um, but I, I didn't do the research before I came but down. I rough, apologize. It's roughly 10%. I can't tell you. I haven't done it. I'll no. put it. You, you want me to put it in the blog tomorrow? Right, okay. No, no, just tell him. Tell him. I'll get his. I'll get your card and tell you what's going. On. Sure. I'm happy to. And you want to know about you know your peers? I'm happy to line you up with three other schools. <laughs> the sad thing is that we probably have to point out to him because there is no one whose job description no, includes this. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. It's always interesting to look and compare yourself to other organizations. Um, one of the big problems is small and medium-sized businesses. They don't have the money to go and pay people to do this like the, the fortune companies do. And uh, they, they get infected. They may not ever know it. We have tons and tons of companies. We can't go out and contact them. There's so many, you know, there's no way to make any money going out and doing that work. It's a, it's a sad state of affairs. But I think the key is that everybody's going to get owned. And you should just plan on it. This is just one of those pie charts that everyone hates. And lots of people give me uh, a hard time about. And I'm happy to take any questions and derogatory comments. Um, but I have to have a pie chart. Um, suits and ties like to look at them. Uh, I think there's a lot wrong with this one. Uh, interesting thing to me is that China has a huge chunk of it. Um, they're a big problem. They're, they're uh, quite infected. And I don't know why. At any rate, there's some other things. It's all about detection, which is what we're trying to do. Remediation, which is a big piece I don't think has, has been figured out how to do. Um, and then, again, back on protection. So what we're trying to do is, is the, the detection part don't yet understand how to do remediation for big chunks of the network, right? Because we're trying to do a global view here. We're trying to take care of huge chunks. We're not, whack-a-mole has not worked. How do you take care of a giant chunk of this from a global view? Uh, great research topics. Um, so these are a few of the companies that we have detected these kinds of things at. You should know some of these names. Bank of America. Um, <coughs> They, they gave us our first cease and desist letter, too. Um, Aflac 3M Nationwide Insurance was fantastic because it was the worst. I mean, they had it all over the place. They were spewing out um, uh, some pretty indecent stuff, stock, pump and dump, uh, across the board. Uh, but it was endemic. They had it coming from lots of places inside. Uh, Intel. Um, that's an organization that we have approached several times uh, that they didn't, uh, they didn't do anything. It continues. Um, I guess they have assets globally, I'm sure. Uh, the stuff continues from uh, the UK, I believe. Borders Group, Clear Channel. Um, Toshiba, we actually got a call back from the CIO um, after we had written them up, and a very nice gentleman. Um, called us, uh, reminded us that they had they told us about the, the things that they had done um, and that doing some, in doing some of those things, it hurt the organization. It made them change, and it was somewhat painful. It broke some things. Uh, and that he would really like it if we'd write something about that they had taken care of the problem. And, uh, and we will. But it was, it was a really nice dialogue, and that's the first CIO that's ever called us after we've written some of these things up. Uh, ATA was the only airlines. The major concern there is they're one of the largest military 
carriers out of the airlines um, and uh, and Business Week, which we're hopefully going to get the story on. But um, at any rate, those are just some of the, the organizations that we've been trying to raise the awareness that this happens, that it shouldn't be anything that you're embarrassed about, that it's going to happen more. And if it happens to Fortune 500s, Fortune 1000 companies, it's happening everywhere. So what does Homeland Defense say? Um, I will show you. I actually have the BAA that just got posted. Um, so again, this is what it comes to. It's about that it's terribly simple and super cheap. And this is what I want to change. We have to make it so that we can have cheap security. Because we're not going to put a dent in the cheap deployment of these things. Speaking of, is the Mac more secure than the PC? It is. Because it has less exploits written for it. So um, when people say, you know, what can my dad do? Buy a Mac. It'll take two years for this thing to get targeted more. So it buys you some time, that's all. But you put, a, you put a Windows box, a new Windows box on the network, it'll get owned in a very short period of time. So a question for you is, uh, what is security without identity? Um, one of the giant research topics for the US government is identity and network identity. And how do we have security without identity? And as reputation or identity becomes more valuable, well, it's not just more valuable to you, it's more valuable to get stolen. So finally, uh, I think my time is up. And this is about anticipating security failures because we have a lot of documentation that a lot of things have failed even after massive investment. And I'm not saying all that, that investment was wrong, but I'm, I'm saying that you have to have strategic warnings about when it's failed. And that is the key piece that my company builds. Um, so understanding when security will fail um, is what saves your assets. If you've got questions, happy to take additional ones. Oh, we do. Excellent. Yes, sir. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Oh, thanks. Are you seeing anything in, in the way of identity theft going through doctors, dentist's office? Well, please repeat all the questions. Oh, well, the question is, have I seen any identity theft going through doctors and dentist's office? Um, I can't tell you uh, specifically about doctors and dentist's office, but let me tell you a little. I have a few minutes to tell you some anecdotes about identity theft, which weren't necessarily in here. Botnets are exfiltrating enormous amounts of identity information. They steal your social security number. They steal your credit cards. We know about what gets stolen because we run another thing that you might have issues with. We run um, a lot of IRC infrastructure. And we data mine this for one thing, the regular expression for a credit card number. <laughs> we take the data that we acquire from this and have tried to give it to FTC's identity theft program. We have sent it to Visa, all the Visa cards. And we. Uh, the response from the VP of fraud at Visa USA was, please do not send these to me again. Because? We haven't had anything beyond that conversation. 
Um, uh, well, we acquired them unencrypted. Um, and it was just an example. We we're trying to get a dialogue going with Visa. We had this inf interesting information we collected every day. Then we started calling them. And my mistake was probably not being or sounding as official as I could. Um, we called people and we said, we have acquired your mother's maiden name, your social security number, your driver's license number, the balance for your bank account on the internet. We wanted to warn you about it. They were very angry. They wanted to call the FBI. We tried to give them our contacts at the FBI's names and numbers. They would not hear that. It was a one, at that, after we said hello, told them who we were, told them what we got, it was a one-way conversation from them to us with expletives. Um, they were angry. Uh, one interesting one, I called up. I said, hello, is Scott there? Um, and she's like, you can't talk to Scott. I was like, okay, uh, why can't I talk to Scott? Is he busy? Scott's my nine-year-old son. Okay, well, let me explain what's going on here. We just received this information that we collected. Uh, Scott, his, your address, you know, is this your address? This is your social security number? This is your or, uh, credit card number? And uh, yes, yes, yes. I was just on a website buying something Scott wanted. He had taken me to a website. Mommy, mommy, I want this. She never told me what it was. Um, and she purchased it for him. And it was about 45 minutes before we had gotten that information and called her up. The last fellow we called was the CISO of the Air National Guard for Oregon. And the only thing that after we went through three of his secretaries, we got to thank you. But that was it. Um, the information that we have now, we are writing letters to them. Uh, and this is a prototype system. I've pitched CIA, DHS, and FBI on building a, a much bigger system that could collect this information. And they're not interested. And FBI wasn't interested for a lot of really good reasons. It was the one document called the Constitution that said that I couldn't do that. And that made me feel safe. It made me feel better because they were actually cognizant of all of these things. But they said, go talk to the NSA. So that's kind of where this thing is spinning. <laughs> The problem, though, is that much of this information is being exfiltrated. It's being bought and sold. I can collect some of it. I can't make any money with this. The best thing that I can do is I can write someone and say that you need to call your credit card company, you need to call your senator, you need to call your representative and have conversations about this. And that, to me, is a really sad state. Actually, I think that's actually policy types on the Hill are actually worse than worthless. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I can this, agree is with that, this is stuff that Cliff and I had to deal with 22 decades ago. And I, I'm amused that Orange Berkeley Lab is on, is on your list. They're, they're one of our customers, yeah, I know. LBL. I know. And, um, is that OK? No, I think, I, think it's, I think it's ironic because they're doing the same thing that they had to do two decades ago with Cliff Stoll. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had to listen. I had to hit listen to Cliff go through all this. I can tell you that the FBI is also borderline worthless as well too. And it's, it, it read with Diffie's book. It's the mentality inside the FBI. You pointed out half of it, which is if it's not worth a million dollars, it's not worth their time. Yes. Which Cliff was at seventy-five cents when he did his 
investigation. And a lot of that actually, what most people don't realize about that book is a lot of stuff is actually still unresolved. Um, you know, I mean, and, and we're talking dead people you know, in a couple of cases here as well, too. But um, no, actually, of all those agencies, he recommended the Treasury was actually the most the most useful. But their problem is they're swamped. Yeah. Back then, the Treasury had had um, more people that work on this. They had fewer people. There was a question about what the government is doing about it. This is uh, BAA out by Doug Mon. I don't know how many of you know Doug uh, in HSR by now. Uh, this just came out. Um, there's a section in here, TTA, TTA 1. Let me see if I can find it for you. Um, Did they ever replace Ed McCorum with anybody? I don't know. He was the head cybersecurity guy of Homeland Security. Sorry. And he said some anti-Microsoft stuff and he got canned. Microsoft has a significant presence everywhere that this conversation arises. They ran the meeting on this insider threats. Microsoft's comment was that they had spent an enormous amount of time and energy and money giving their source code to the US government, giving it to the Chinese government to verify that there weren't any back doors. And they were really pissed, and they kept bringing this up. Well, they, we, well they, there's many Chinese nationals that work on Microsoft's code. Microsoft company employs Chinese nationals. So there's some concern from the US government. The problem that I pointed out was that no one, to my knowledge, had ever in, infiltrated code for a back door and got it deployed and on operating systems. But I knew of hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands within the US, United States government compromised today that didn't need a back door. So I was frustrated. You can infiltrate the system by following program specifications. You don't have to insert a back door. No. So it was just a, a comment on my frustration of recent conversations with some of the TLAs out there. Um, this particular thing is uh, Doug Mons put up four and a half million dollars, um, and this topic area is for botnets and malware detection for U.S. CERT, um, and it's a it's a great thing. I don't know if you guys have researchers out there that do botnet detection, um, but the white papers have to be uh, at least acknowledged by the 13th. So you at least have to uh, register and and say that you're going to put a white paper in by the end of the month, but you have to tell them about the white paper by the 13th. They also have a partnering portal if you want to find other partners to partner with on putting up response together for these things. Um, and so that was... Have you, have you talked to Richard Clark at all, by the way? I have not. I, I recommend talking to him. The problem, unfortunately, um, and, you know, I don't want to make this sound too much of a rant, but he experienced this before he left is the fact that our political institutions and the like are built up along traditional sort of physical athletic lines. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine who was the webmaster of the FBI, in fact, pointed this out to me on what Monday at the FBI building is like. And it's, about, it's basically about the games, the football or basketball or baseball that occurred over the course of the weekend. That's, that's the office conversation. And the people, and Clark isn't the only one, who, who deal with cyber threats, as an example. Um, the people in D.C., the mentality, it, it's, it's completely pervasive throughout all of the capital. 
is that until a serious, truly, purely cyber threat, as opposed to a mixed cyber and physical threat, hmm. happens, uh, it's all theory. Well, it was, yes. It, and it, I actually think that we've had this experience. We have a huge cyber threat ongoing today. But I suppose there's some debate about well, that. See, and the problem is that, is that you're, you're dealing with a lot of people who, who deal with, econo quote, economic harm. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the problem that hit the people with 9-11 is the fact that it, that's not economic harm. That's 3,000 people who died. And until you do that kind of thing, and, and a lot of this, there's half the security community who think, oh, no, no, but the thing is, if you do this all by a bits, you can just cause as much damage. The answer is no, it's not quite as much damage. That's not the way. So what surprises me about your figures, like your passwords and the clear and the credit cards, is I actually think those numbers are kind of on the low side, which surprised me. Um, I would expect orders of magnitude more. That was yeah. for one very small uh, 800 node network, and that was 30 days. Yeah, I figured it was a small, it was, uh, a small sample size. Yeah, and it, we're just trying to talk about that one because it's discrete, and there's other researchers that have the same data, so it's easy to... So the 267,000 that, that is our research of all of uh, six months of analysis across many domains, everything from DDoS to click fraud. But that's only the part of it that you know about. That's right. Yes, sir? Uh, there are a couple of, couple of things that are of interest here to me. Uh, one is, uh, you know, when you get infected, some program runs on your machine. And you need to, uh, uh, to do something to make it work. Uh, and you can find that by scanning the machine and looking, looking through operating memory and discovering it. Um, that's difficult to do because it's fairly easy to make that obscure. Uh, one of the things that people have worried about uh, is to uh, have the uh, uh, machine's uh, system compromised to the point that you insert underneath the operating system of virtualization. And I'm curious as to whether you're beginning to see that. I haven't. You have or have not? Have, have, um, underneath the operating system? Yes, so that, that programs running on the machine don't see the... Oh, rootkits do this. No, no, no. one level below that. Okay. So that you effectively virtualize the entire machine and both the user space mm -hmm. and the botnet space are distinct and separate. We're outside my area. So I, I wouldn't have seen The that. answer is maybe, I guess. Yeah. Anything else? Is well, Microsoft on the list of companies that's been compromised? Um, no, and for several reasons of which I won't disclose. You want to repeat what he said? Uh, his question was, is Microsoft on the list of companies that uh, have, have been bought it? And I said no, uh, for several reasons of which that I won't disclose. So there are many companies that we have not put up there. Uh, yes, sir? What do you see as trends among the community at large? I mean, are you seeing more denial, acceptance, some... From the security community or from the no, no, community from of malicious actors? No, not malicious actors. From the victim. I mean, you gave some anecdotal 
things about victims being men. But are, did, are, are, do you see a trend in companies? Are they taking this seriously? Still in denial that it exists? You know, uh, so his question is, uh, what's the trend in companies, and uh, are people still in denial, or do they uh, actually acknowledge this? And the way that I'd answer this question is the number of uh, news articles in the paper. So when something isn't, when something's new, we'll have more articles. Um, I don't think that within when I go and talk to Fortune companies or even companies in the Valley that are, aren't necessarily giants, um, they've never heard about it. Most CIOs, CISOs had never heard about botnets, and we hear that from the uh, the guys in the trenches that are doing security, and they say, you know, I've heard about botnets, I understand it, I see the infected computers, but my boss's boss has never heard of any of this stuff, and we don't have any money for it. And so, at the sea level, I don't think that it's out there. I don't think that they understand. And that's one of the reasons that we've been trying to put these companies in the blog, is not to embarrass anyone, but to raise awareness. And frankly, you know, companies like Trend Micro that knows this kind of stuff, or Dambala, they aren't going to do that because they have VC funding, they have bosses. I get to do what I want because I don't have anybody to tell me that I shouldn't do it. And so we can, and we do, because we think that it's important, because I don't want to see these companies compromised. I don't want, I, I want to see something done about the grandmas. And we can't start there, so we have to start with the, the fortunes. You said that a lot of this is if people are just not aware they haven't heard about it. I, um, within, the, within the large companies, yes. So do you think it will take incidents which make the 11 o'clock news before this happens? Oh, that's how America works. <laughs> Another nine, a soft virtual 9-11. Right? You probably need to stop now because we're about 10 minutes over. So. That's one question. Okay. Good. Well, since you... Okay. Uh, Rick, if I want to go and buy uh, 10,000 hours on a botnet, mm -hmm. how big a botnet can I get? What's it going to cost? You can get uh, bots for pennies. Um, it's usually not by uh, compute hour, as it is with Amazon. Um, you usually buy by the service, you know, we will deliver spam for you at a certain rate. We will do a denial of service for, you know, some length of time. Will they run my program? Um, I haven't seen that offered. Uh, you find them on IRC, and it takes a long time to get vetted. So, you know, you're not going to find some form that you fill out on the Internet and get charged via your credit card. A lot of times it's e-gold. Um, <laughs> They do a security check on you. There is. There's a whole community, and you know you have to work your way in. You can't just walk into it. So, and they're probably as anal as uh, some of the large. So you have to prove your guild. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But no one's running bomb codes. Bomb codes. Bomb codes. <laughs> 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 uh, I have no comment. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For information on other online Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U.
and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.